Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. One of our children, probably leaving the sanctuary, now was given two cookies by her father and instructed to find her brother and share one of the cookies with him. And she was instructed to be generous by giving him the bigger cookie. And the little girl looked at the two cookies and paused and looked at her father. And after a moment said, Daddy, I think I've decided that I want you to give him the cookies and ask him to be generous. (laughs) Now, this story features a child, but it could just as easily have featured an adult because all of us from infancy to adulthood struggle with this desire for more. And this desire for more eventually begins to center on money and material goods. And so the Bible contains frequent warnings against the desire to accumulate earthly things. In fact, the Bible has more passages addressing sins associated with money than sins associated with sex. And that's not because the Bible regards money and possessions as in themselves evil things any more than it would regard sex as something evil in itself. It recognizes that money is important in extending the kingdom in things like supporting missionaries and building hospitals and funding orphanages. And our material needs that we have for food, clothing, and shelter are consistently affirmed by the scriptures. But at the same time, an ultimate desire for earthly goods and material possessions is seen as fatal to our spiritual health and our relationship with God. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve both of them. They're opposed to each other. The Greek word there for money is actually mammon, which refers to earthly and material goods more broadly. And this might explain why half of the parables of Jesus almost contain some kind of reference to the handling of material goods or deal with money matters. It's because money matters. Money is a pervasive part of our lives. We spend an awful lot of time making money, spending money, and thinking and planning for making and spending money. And so the way we think about money and the way we handle our material resources, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, often serves to reflect our hearts, serves as a window into the condition of our hearts. The way we handle money and think about money often reveals the condition of our hearts, and oftentimes it reveals a condition of corruption, a corruption in our hearts that's identified in Scripture as coveting, or to use an older term, avarice, or simply as greed. And whatever we call it, it's a very serious sin that deserves the condemnation and judgment of God as the case of Achan in the book of Joshua so clearly demonstrates. So we're going to consider greed this morning. This is now the fifth of seven deadly sins that I've covered in some kind of context or another. I addressed lust at the Porn Kills Conference, and I've preached sermons on vainglory, gluttony, anger, and now greed. So don't be surprised if sloth and envy uh, come up at some time in the future. But as we begin considering greed, it might be helpful to define it. And greed can be defined as an excessive desire for money itself, 
So think about an Ebenezer Scrooge type who just loves to accumulate money itself on his or her desk, or an excessive desire for the things that money can buy, in other words, material possessions, that results in an inordinate attachment to material goods, the pursuit of disproportionate accumulation, and a sense of possession. That's greed. Jesus tells us a parable about the importance of guarding against greed in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. So that's what we're going to consider this morning as we think about greed, this parable that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to that passage. If you don't, you can follow along on the screen. I'll be reading from the ESV, which is also the version that's printed uh, on the screens. So from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, um, that's what we're going to read this morning. I invite you to stand as we read God's word. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops." And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. Then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now for the blessing upon your word preached and proclaimed. We pray that you would open up our ears, our hearts, and our lives to receive your word and respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want us to cover a number of things um, this morning in connection with guarding against greed. And the first uh, that I want to start with is explaining the problem of greed explaining the problem of greed. Now, just by way of background, this parable is occasioned by someone in the crowd who interrupts Jesus' teaching to enlist him to settle some kind of family inheritance dispute. And this appears to raise red flags for Jesus, and he issues this warning against coveting or against greed. Now, the reason it raises red flags is because if this individual has a legitimate claim to the inheritance, it would be odd to enlist Jesus in the case instead of going to the proper authorities. And if he doesn't have a legitimate claim to the inheritance, it seems that he hopes to use the influence of Jesus for his own material gain. So this prompts Jesus to say in verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or against all kinds of greed, as the NIV translates it. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And that's really what the parable that follows is about, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of of his or her possessions. And in the parable that Jesus tells, we're introduced to a rich man who enjoys a plentiful harvest. And this plentiful harvest makes him even richer. So he has to decide what to do. What does he decide to do? Well, he decides to upgrade by tearing down his existing barns and building bigger ones to store his grain and his goods so he can sit back, relax, and enjoy life for years to come. 
Now, at first glance, it might be difficult for us to detect what exactly the problem is in what the rich man does. I mean, it seems like a sensible plan, which that in itself should immediately concern us, that we don't see that there's a problem necessarily in what he does that might indicate how much greed and a mentality of greed we just think is normal. But it also ought to concern us because in verse 20, God declares that this person is a fool. That's a moral assessment. It's not referring to any kind of intellectual lack. A fool is a moral category in Scripture. But why is he a fool? What does he do that's foolish? Well, perhaps the first thing that we can say is this man adopts a lifestyle of acquisition, accumulation, and excess. He adopts that kind of a lifestyle. He has far more than he needs. I mean, this individual already has barns that are full. That's why he doesn't have anywhere to place the harvest that he's received. His barns are already full. Barns, plural. He's already got barns, but he decides to tear those down and build bigger ones. That's possible we still have a hard time seeing the problem. And maybe that's because, as Rebecca DeYoung writes, the early church fathers assumed that most of one's income and possessions are not to be spent on upgrading one's lifestyle, but to be given away. But to contemporary Christians, this isn't obvious at all. It is a daunting challenge. The challenge is described this way by David Platt in his book, Radical. He says the war against materialism in our hearts is exactly that, a war. It is a constant battle to resist the temptation to have more luxuries, to acquire more stuff, and to live more comfortably. It requires strong and steady resolve to live out the gospel in the midst of an American dream that identifies success as moving up the ladder, getting the bigger house, purchasing the nicer car, buying the better clothes, eating the finer food, and acquiring more things. In summary, we could say building bigger barns. And that's what this rich man does. He doesn't resist the temptation toward accumulation. He embraces it. The problem with that leads, secondly, that there are subtle indications that he begins to put his trust in his accumulated resources, or to use Jesus' language, to put his trust in the abundance of his possessions. I mean, he can relax, eat, drink, and be merry for years to come because his future is secured through his possessions. And life, security, and happiness can result from these possessions rather than from God. You see, if, if we look to something other than God for life, security, and happiness, that's idolatry. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, refers to greed as idolatry, finding our happiness, life, and security in earthly things. One writer has insightfully put it, for what is it to have a God? It is to have an object to which the heart turns with the supreme affection into which the mind looks as a refuge and defense in all the changes and chances of time. That describes this man and his money and his earthly resources. But God exposes the folly of this idol in verse 20 by removing his life from him by showing that these resources cannot secure his life or his happiness. And the third thing we can say 
is, is that he regards his possessions as his own with no thought of God or others. Notice how he refers to my crops, my grain, my goods, even my soul. But God exposes the foolishness of this as well by ironically noting that death is going to take it all away from him and he has no idea who actually is going to possess it after him. It's not his and he doesn't know ultimately who's going to have it. His money and his plans prove fleeting and futile. So it's no wonder that this parable is frequently referred to as the parable of the rich fool because the man is foolish and greed is foolish. Jesus says that it's better to give than to receive. Greed says it's better to receive than to give. Which one do you believe? Which one do I believe? And does what we say we believe line up with how we actually live? Or have we adopted a lifestyle of acquisition, accumulation, and excess? And have we begun to put our trust for life, security, and happiness in our resources? And do we view our possessions as our own? And as we think through these kinds of questions, that leads to the second thing we're going to do, and that's explore the practice of greed. Exploring the practice of greed. Do you struggle with greed? A desire for money itself or an inordinate attachment to your possessions? We note that Jesus tells us in verse 15 to take care and be on our guard against greed, suggesting that it can seep into our hearts very subtly. And once there, it might be very difficult for us to detect. And certainly living in a capitalistic society, we can regularly breathe in these fumes of greed and begin to conclude that it's normal and even good. I mean, we live in a culture where poverty is viewed as a far, far worse condition than having a greedy heart. We live in a culture where poverty is clearly bad. Greedy heart, mm, maybe have some advantages there. We live in a culture where politicians routinely seek electoral votes by promising us more and more of prosperity. Less and less taxes. We're going to fix the economy so that everybody can be more materially prosperous. And we just think this is normal. Of course they would promise us that because that's what we want to hear. We live in a culture where the prevalence of gambling and lotteries reflect an obsession with wealth and getting rich. We live in a society where significant and frequent debt is a sign that we are unable to act our wage. We're unable to act our wage because we've convinced ourselves that we actually have needs for these material resources, like heated seats in our vehicles. Really? Those are the kinds of luxuries that we're striving for because our butts can't be cold <laughs> for five minutes? And we live in a culture where family relationships are acceptably sacrificed for financial gain and career advancement. I mean, our, our children need the material basics of food, clothing, and shelter, but they, do they really need the luxuries that we're pursuing for them and at the expense of a relationship with their parents? But we live in a culture that just accepts this as normal and even healthy. And it shouldn't surprise us in a culture of greed to find that those who are perceived to be a financial burden, who don't profit the economic system like the elderly, 
like the disabled, like the young, like the poor, are neglected, or we simply try to get rid of them. I mean, we all know that there are a lot of abortions that are motivated primarily by economic factors. Not, not every one of them, but a good number are motivated by economic factors because having babies costs too much. Not in other ways, but it costs too much money. Now, perhaps at this point, everything is still out there in the culture. But we need to ask, do Christians live lives markedly different than non-Christian when it comes to how we handle money? I would really encourage you, if you haven't read David Platt's Radical, to, to read the book to see how our hearts are not immune to the forces of greed around us and can worm their way into our hearts. I mean, we accept and participate in the rank commercialization and consumerism of our most sacred holidays as Christians. We just had it with Easter, but even especially with Christmas. We adopt the commercialization with that in the church. And our celebration often looks the same as a celebration of non-Christians. And it's likely that we need to confess the excess in our lives, like a shopping cart that overflows with food that I know I'm going to have to throw out a good portion of it before I can actually use it all. And I know it when I'm putting it in there. I'm not going to be able to eat all this before I have to throw some of it away. And I routinely do it. And it seems normal. Or maybe you have to confess of the garage that's full of vintage cars or motorcycles or boats that you use maybe once or twice a year. Or you need to confess a closet that's full of clothes and shoes that you wear once a year or that you've even forgotten that you own because it's buried under other clothes and shoes that you only wear once or twice a year. Or you need to confess of the excess of entertainment resources you have, like the stacks and stacks of Blu-ray DVD movies or your iTunes library or bookshelves that are overflowing with books that you couldn't actually fully enjoy with two lifetimes. But we just absorb that kind of excess. We need to confess that. Or maybe you're the kind of person that just simply seeks comfort or the alleviation of a bad day by fantasizing about purchases, by flipping through catalogs or, or shopping on the internet, dream of, dreaming about what you might be able to get, or actually going out and shopping and buying something because you're prone to believe that your comfort, your life, your security, and your happiness comes through the abundance of your possessions or it comes through building bigger barns. Are you, are you the fool in the parable? Am I the fool in the parable? So I think about exploring the practice of greed in my own life. I was forced to ask myself these kinds of questions. How hard, it, how hard would it be for me to give up my vacation trip with my family in order to give that vacation money to someone else who never is able to enjoy a vacation? Or how hard would it be for me to, go, to forego my own home improvement projects to give that money to those who really need home improvement in order to live decent lives? How hard would that be for me to do? And perhaps you need to ask yourself that question too. Or maybe you need to ask questions like this. How hard would it be for you to get rid of half of the clothes in your closet because you don't need them? How hard would it be for you to resist upgrading to the latest iPhone or Apple product even when you're eligible because you don't want to be enslaved to your things? 
Now, I'm not at all suggesting that these are necessary things for you to do. The only question I'm asking is how hard would it be for you to do these things? Because the way you answer that question is likely going to reveal the attachment of your heart to your things. And it's the attachment of the heart that is the main issue. The main issue is the attachment of your heart to the things, not the things themselves. There have been many in church history who have called Christians to renounce all possessions or to at least adopt a lifestyle of poverty by living on the bare minimum. But it seems that the Bible recognizes that a life lived with goods possessed in moderation and even enjoying some of life's luxuries are divine blessings to be enjoyed at times, provided the heart is not inordinately attached to these things. See, it's an issue of the heart. Rebecca DeYoung, in her book, Glittering Vices, I've, I've talked about this before, it's a fantastic book, uh, but she says this. When Aquinas and Augustine, those are uh, church fathers, uh, discuss the needs of this life, whether in the context of food or money, they emphasize not just what is necessary for bare subsistence, but also what is necessary for living a life becoming or appropriate to human beings. The point is not to live on crusts of bread with bare walls and threadbare clothes. The point is that a fully human life is lived in a way free from being enslaved to our stuff. But how do I know if I'm enslaved to my stuff? And how do I keep from being enslaved to my stuff? And how do I go about eliminating the presence of greed from my heart and from my life? And so that brings us to the third point, eliminating the presence of greed. Eliminating the presence of greed from our hearts requires, first of all, faith. Faith that adopts certain eternal values and spiritual perspectives. Faith to adopt certain perspectives. For example, the perspective that we are pilgrims here on our way to our heavenly home. And rather than seeing the accumulation of our goods as constantly being sources of divine blessing, accumulation might actually hinder our spiritual progress on the journey, right? Pilgrims don't want to take along too much stuff. It's a hindrance and an obstacle. And we need to be open to the idea that upgrading materially in our life can sometimes mean downgrading spiritually. We have to be open to that reality. It also means adopting a perspective that money and material goods are not ends in themselves, but they're means to an end of serving. And what this allows us to do is use our money to serve our love for people rather than use people to serve our love for money. Let me say that again. We need to see money not as an end in itself or possessing things as an end in themselves, but we need to see them as means to an end to serve others so that we can use money to serve our love for people rather than use people to serve our love for money. And finally, we need to adopt the spiritual perspective that ultimately we don't own anything. God owns everything. During the Crusades of the 12th century, many of those going out to battle insisted that they be baptized before they took the battlefield. But as they were being baptized, many of them also held their swords out and away from the water to indicate the one thing that did not come under the submission of the lordship of Jesus so they could use their swords on the battlefield however they saw fit. Their swords were their own. Is that what some of us are doing 
with our money, with our checkbooks, with our credit cards, with our bank accounts, with our purses. Lord, you, you can have lordship over these areas, but not my money and not my material resources. But if it all belongs to God, the question is not, what do I do with my things? The question is, what do I do with God's things? What do I do with God's things? And that's a good way of framing the question. What do I do? Because eliminating the presence of greed requires not only the adopting of certain perspectives, it also requires the adoption of certain practices so that we can be rich toward God. That's the language that Jesus uses in the parable, being rich toward God. And in fact, the rich man in the parable is not so much a fool, it seems, because of what he possesses. God had granted him that yield of harvest. He's a fool not, for, not so much for what he possesses, but for what he lacks as one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. He lacks that. And perhaps this would be a time to mention the importance that neither his nor your saving for the future, setting aside things for future use, is in itself sinful. That wasn't the mistake he made. Making wise decisions of stewardship and recognizing needs for the future is good and wise. In fact, there's an opposite extreme to the sin of greed, and it's called prodigality, which is the irresponsible handling of our material resources and our money. It's so named because of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 who squanders away his property and his inheritance in reckless living. That's also sinful. The Bible doesn't commend greed or prodigality. In fact, there's wisdom in conserving. Proverbs chapter, I think Proverbs is up here. Proverbs chapter uh, 21 verse 20 says that precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Right away, it's just gone. There's a wisdom in conservation. And outside the extremes of greed and prodigality, the sinfulness of greed on the one hand and the prodigality, the sinfulness of prodigality on the other, we have the virtue of generosity, which is a proper detachment from earthly things that enables us to share our goods and to give them away. That's what we're aiming for. Not greed or prodigality, but generosity. So if you want to eliminate the presence of greed and you want to be rich toward God, then give generously with an open hand and an open heart. But that doesn't mean that you're giving everything away. That's not what it means. Because not only are we commended to show compassion to the poor and to provide for those needs, we're also commanded to provide for our own families in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. In fact, a failure to do so means that you're living a life that's worse than an unbeliever if you fail to provide for your own family. So it doesn't mean just giving everything away. Saving for your kid's college, having a fund for medical emergencies is not sinful. It's not greedy. It's not foolish. But then, how do we know how generous we're to be? And that becomes a difficult question because I think the difficulty for Christians lies in determining what constitutes adequate provision and what constitutes excess. And that's difficult to determine. But when it comes to generosity, C.S. Lewis gives us some sound advice. This is what C.S. Lewis says about generosity. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. 
In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusement, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. Along these lines, Christian pastor and author Rick Phillips writes, If we have never sold or denied ourselves anything in order to give, then in Jesus' terms we are not living a life that is rich toward God. Only by divesting from this world can we safeguard our hearts from the covetousness that is so common and perilous to our spiritual life. This requires that we pump the sewage of greed from our hearts. But God has given us a way to pump the sewage of greed from our hearts. Did you know that? He's given us a way to do that. It's called tithing. Tithing is not just an act of obedience to the Lord. It's not just a way to grow in our dependence upon God to be our provider. It's not just a way to extend the kingdom. It's not just a way to show compassion to the needy. It is all of those things, but it's also a way for us to do battle against greed by allowing us to develop a rhythm in which we loosen our attachment to earthly things and to money to be rich toward God. If you want to be rich toward God and eliminate the presence of greed, give generously and tithe faithfully. As the worship band comes back up, allow me to share with you also one of the things that John Piper writes in Desiring God. He says there are three levels of how to live with things. You can steal to get, or you can work to get, or you can work to get in order to give. Too many professing Christians live on level two. Almost all the forces of our culture urges them to live on level two, but the Bible pushes us relentlessly to level three. And it does. The Bible pushes us to level three, but it does so not by shaming us or guilting us. It does so by presenting the beauty of the gospel where the generosity of God is seen in the giving of his son to die on a cross in the place of sinners. It presents to us the generosity of God. This table is set before us this morning to partake of through the sacrificial generosity of God toward us. God so loved that he gave. And so those who have received that love do the same. We love because God has loved us. And so we give to God and to others. But God has not only saved us, he's made us sons and daughters. He's adopted us, and that's made us heirs, co-heirs with Christ, heirs of all things. You see, in Christ, I am immeasurably rich. And if I believe that and live like I believe that, I can divest of the things of earth and earthly treasures in order to invest in spiritual things and spiritual treasure. See, the Bible's not against investing. It gets bad and foolish investments that seek only what this world can offer with no view toward God. But the missionary martyr Jim Elliott was right when he said, that man is no fool, like the person in the parable, no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep, like our money, our possessions, and even our lives, in order to gain that which we cannot lose. Pleasures and treasures at the right hand of God 
forevermore through Jesus Christ. So let us repent of our greed and let us be rich toward God by imitating him in his generosity and love and find our treasure not in earthly things, but in Jesus and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know the attachment of our hearts to earthly things. And you perceive our lack of being rich toward you. We pray that you would remove the sinfulness and the corruption of our hearts, the greed of our hearts, and replace it with contentment as we receive your generosity provided to us through Jesus Christ and through the gospel that enables us to divest of the things of earth and to invest in the things of the kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.